I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. After she's gotten justice, the fact that whenever she goes home to her village, she's always threatened, her life is in, is in danger, then she can never have a normal life. It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. Everything is very gender biased. It's all pink and blue. Kids are being raised as girls or boys. They're not being raised as just children, as human beings who would respect each other. I've invited some incredible women to join me around my virtual kitchen table and put the world to rights. In this episode of Masala Podcast, I speak with two Indian Americans, Ram Devanini and Deepti Mehta, the people behind the comic book Priya and the Lost Girls. Ram is the first man we've ever had on Masala Podcast. You lucky man. He's a great ally in the South Asian feminist fight and is behind the Priya Shakti series of comic books. Priya Shakti is the first Indian comic book of its kind, showing us how an ordinary Salwar Kameez-clad young woman becomes a superhero, inspired by gods and goddesses to challenge deep-rooted patriarchal norms and social issues. The series includes three comic books, tackling issues such as rape, sexual violence, acid attacks, and sex trafficking, all using augmented reality to engage younger audiences. The series has been named Gender Equality Champion by UN Women and has been featured on the BBC, Guardian, NBC News, Huffington Post and many more. The most recent comic book in this series, Priya and the Lost Girls, deals with the taboo topic of sex trafficking. So let's start maybe by talking about how you started Priya as a series. So Priya and the Lost Girls is the third chapter of a series of comic books, each of which focuses on a particular issue, doesn't it? So if you want to talk to me about how that came about and why you started this in the first place. Sure. So I was in uh, Delhi in December 2012. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker, so I was there exploring a documentary that I was uh, shooting. And, um, and all of a sudden, there was this horrible gang rape that happened on a bus. Um, this is December 2012. And it just, ex the news exploded. The horrific nature of what happened to her was just astounding. And she eventually died from her wounds. Um, and this caused this explosion, especially among young people all over India, uh, who were just basically fed up and tired by the indifference shown by the government and also just by their elders towards um, the role of women in society. And as, as, as most people know, the, uh, because of urbanization and all these dramatic things, you know, women have really moved in India into positions of authority and respect and, and um, everything else, but societal perceptions of them have never been updated. So this protest was that frustration that exploded. And uh, it got national attention and eventually international attention. And in one of these protests um, that I went to, 
I was basically not only involved, but I was interviewing many of the protesters themselves. And I eventually got to talking to a police officer, a Delhi cop, asked him about what he thought about what happened to her and in particular what was happening around him. And he said something that basically got me started on this whole project. He said, no good girl walks home alone at night. No good girl walks home alone at night, implying that she either deserved it or she provoked the rape. Just because she was out with her friends, right. she deserved what happened was what the context of what he was saying. I mean, it? I mean, it's it's such a tragic thing to think because uh, her and her boyfriend, I, I mean, she really represented this mobility of women in India. She came from a poor Absolutely. family. Her father worked as a baggage carrier at the airport, at the Mumbai airport, I'm sorry, at the Delhi airport. And um, she represented this mobility that was happening in society. Um, she, you know, was studying to become a uh, physiotherapist and her was dating a boyfriend and they were taking the bus and they just came back from watching the life of Pi. So I could, I could just imagine, you know, they were, they were pretty happy and enthusiastic about watching this beautiful movie and very powerful and, and sad movie. And then this happens to them. I mean, they're on this bus and they get uh, attacked and tormented by these, you know, drunk men who were out there to cause problems. Um, so this was, I think this, she was a representation of this modern Indian woman. Um, and I think that resonated a lot with the protesters, especially the young protesters. Um, so I realized, you know, after talking to this cop, that the problem of sexual violence, gender violence, was not a legal problem, but a cultural problem. And this was new to me because uh, I didn't grow up talking or understanding gender issues. Uh, like most men, um, it was not something we thought was a man's issue. And uh, we always thought it was a woman's issue. So this kind of was an awakening for me as well. And this began this long process of researching and trying to understand it, talking with um, you know philosophers, writers, uh, people working in NGOs dealing with gender violence issue. Then, then this eventually led to me uh, interviewing several gang rape survivors in uh, northern northern India in um, UP. And did that lead you to the first first chapter of Priya? Yes. So this, uh, after my interviews with the gang rape survivors, um, I knew there was a concrete story that can be told using Hindu mm. mythology, a story that really focuses on survivors. Um, the two women that I interviewed who were gang rape survivors, uh, one, one completed her trial and the other one was in the process of trying to get justice. And what both of them told me was the process and the stigma surrounding rape was all put on them. The burden was put on them. The struggle and the suffering they had to go through to get justice was put on them. And um, listening to them, I realized how difficult and, and near impossible it was for survivors to seek justice. And then equally important to start the healing process. Because without societal support, without support from the community and family, these survivors, uh, it just doesn't lead to a proper healing. I mean, it's, it's something you'll never completely heal from, but it doesn't even, the process doesn't even start. Um, when I interviewed one of the survivors, um, she was in, in her apartment. She was not far from the village where this, uh, where the gang rape happened. And this was a few years after she got justice. So the perpetrators are already in jail, 
But even then, when I interviewed her, there was a police officer in the other room with a semi-automatic machine gun. So I, I thought to myself, you know, if this is what she has to go through after she's gotten justice, the fact that, that whenever she goes home to her village, she's always threatened, her life is in, is in danger, then she can never have a normal life. There's no incentive for survivors to seek justice and to be public, knowing that they're gonna be, uh, their life is gonna be threatened and they have to be protected by a cop with a semi-automatic machine gun for the rest of their lives. As she was a young woman, um, probably when she was a teenager when this happened. So you can imagine, you know, a teenager, what would a teenager have to go through? You know, they can't go shopping or they can't go to the prom or any school event because they have, they're going to be guarded by a cop with a semi-automatic machine gun. This is the kind of situation they're going to have to face. And not only does she, and I'm sure a lot of other women like her, have to deal with the repercussions mm -hmm. of what's happened, and then to seek justice, which is very difficult in the Indian system. And then on top of that, to deal with society, which is essentially saying somehow it's her fault. I mean, it's inconceivable, I think, to me, how, you know, how we've got to this place. Absolutely inconceivable. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's where, as, as the comic book, as Priya in, in the comic book, that's her battle. Is, is not necessarily the battle against perpetrators or men or anything else. It's against societal views towards survivors. When you create that empathy and understanding for survivors, it breaks this cycle that occurs. I personally believe that um, because of the lack of support from society, it actually emboldens uh, perpetrators to commit more rape because they know they can get away with it. What do I think of when I think of comic books? Strong superheroes, usually men with big muscles, fighting evil using their superpowers. I don't think of an Indian woman as a superhero, and I definitely don't expect a young Indian woman who looks like one of us to be a superhero. That, I think, is the power of the Priya Shakti series of comic books. It uses a really accessible medium to tackle massive issues like sexual violence or sex trafficking, making them approachable and relatable to a much younger audience. So Priya Shakti is a comic book series, yes, but it's much more than that. It's such a great way to engage with young people and get them to question deep-rooted patriarchal beliefs that are embedded in South Asian culture beliefs that damage the lives of South Asian women and beliefs that need to change. What was book number two about? Well, the second book is called uh, Priya's Mirror and it uh, continues Priya's adventures and she focuses on um, acid attacks and especially survivors of acid attacks. So when we were releasing and launching the first comic book, um, I was you know, approached by several acid attack survivors through an NGO in uh, India called uh, Stop Acid Attacks. And they invited me to their offices. And, um, and I spoke to them and started really trying to understand what they were facing. Because acid attacks uh, in India and also elsewhere are slightly different. They're not labeled as sex crimes, right? So they fall under this different jurisdiction. 
And um, a lot of these survivors can go public and open about it, which rape survivors are, are prevented from in India, at least. So these survivors were talking about what happened to them. And, and clearly what I understood was the, the, the attack and all, all sexual violence attacks are about power and control. And many of these survivors uh, of acid attacks, what they, their, their perpetrators were someone who uh, was pursuing them obs obsessively, maybe even stalking them, and these two, and they didn't return that affection. And in other cases, it was family members or even husbands throwing acid at them. I mean, a, a more historical, uh, um, a more historical crime that that sort of followed that was a precursor to acid attacks was, of course, uh, burning women in bed. Um, so there was many incidents of that in the 70s and previously. Um, but as the acid became more available, a lot of these, a lot of these men, cowardly men, use acid instead. One thing I, one thing I learned from all of this is acid attack survivors face the same cultural stigma as rape survivors. So the lack of support from community is what kept them after the attack to face the repercussions of that. So they not only had to go through this enormous process of reconstruction, getting physical therapy, they of course then had to face the stigma of not getting support from their family or their community. And often the blame was put on them for why they were, the acid was thrown on them, which was completely wrong. Um, so, so many of them kept isolated in their houses, away from community. Uh, I mean, you can imagine it's quite difficult for just the general public to see a woman completely, her face completely scarred and deformed by acid. But, um, so this was, uh, I mean, this was something they faced on a regular basis. So the women that I spoke to in Stop Acid Attacks, the organization, they were all advocates. What they believed is that women, the survivors of acid attack needed to go public and needed to sort of make people uh, both discomfortable and comfortable with what happened to them. You know, challenge their perceptions and then also make them realize that even though they might be horrifically deformed by acid, they're still humans, they're still human beings, they're, they're, they're full, uh, full human beings with aspirations, dreams, and, uh, and they're, you know, they're wonderful people that need to be integrated back into society and society needs to accept them. And that's what this uh, organization was doing. Um, so that led to the development of the second chapter, Priya's Mirror. And um, how did the third chapter, Priya and the Lost Girls, come about? Well, the third chapter, you know, we, we, we take about, so we take about two years between each comic to really research and develop it. And uh, in particular, there's a whole documentary element to it. So I go out and talk to survivors, talk to NGOs, and um, really kind of try to understand the core issue, the essence of what the problem is. Um, whether I get it or not, that's up, up to debate, and, and you can read the comic book and decide for yourself. So with this third one, Pre and the Lost Girls, I was approached by my uh, NGO partner, Apniap Women Worldwide, in particular with Chira Gupta, who runs it. And she's been involved in uh, the issue of sex trafficking and, and women working in the brothels in India for almost 20 years. So they, she said, I should really look at this as an issue because this could be something that Priya would have, to, should tackle in this uh, third edition. So um, I was invited by them to go to Sonagachi and spend about five days, maybe about a week in Sonagachi in January 2017 and started the research process. 
um, talking with women and basically documenting and understanding Sonagachi, which is the largest uh, red light district in Asia. It's located in Kolkata. It's a very isolated little uh, town within the bigger city, uh, completely self-run uh, and managed and isolated from the rest of the city. And that's where this idea of this, the mythical city of Rahu kind of came about, was from my observations of Sonagachi and interviewing the women. I loved speaking with Deepthi Mehta, who's an actor and writer of Priya and the Lost Girls. Before talking with Deepthi, I found myself thinking about all the comic books that I had grown up reading. They were full of Indian gods riding into storms and churning poison from the oceans. Beautiful Indian goddesses and apsaras, shining celestial beings who always had long, dark, lustrous hair, tiny strips of choli covering their breasts, lots of chunky gold jewellery adorning their hair and their hands, gold waistbands encircling tiny waists and showing off their belly buttons. I remember being mesmerised by how beautiful these fictional Indian comic book heroines were. But I don't remember any of them fighting off sex traffickers. So looking at Priya and the Lost Girls, kind of flipping through the comic book, um, a lot of the kind of illustrations and the style reminded me very much of Indian comics books growing up, like Chandamama and, you know, um, I don't know if you know any of those, you know, Twinkle and things like that, that we had growing up. So to an Indian of a certain age, which is my age, <laughs> they look very familiar. Uh, and I love that. And But at the same time, it's quite uh, modern as well. And I think that's what is beautiful about the, the quality of the illustrations. So where you have the tiger leaping in, it's very modern, almost kind of ultra-realistic, but it's got those kind of Indian kind of colors and styles. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about next was the very serious theme that you're, you and Rama are trying to tackle with the comic book which is trafficking. And as we know, millions of women and girls get trafficked every year. They end up in kind of red light districts and they get stuck in a spiral where they never make enough money to get out. So sometimes five or six generations of women end up becoming victims of trafficking. Uh, so not only does this then lead to kind of their own lives kind of being pretty much destroyed, but lots of psychological issues and PTSD and anxiety and, you know, STIs and all these sorts of things. So um, what led you and Ram to kind of focus on trafficking for this comic book? Like you said, Sangeeta, Priya Shakti is a very unique kind of comic book in its content and its delivery both. Um, so... For, for me, to begin with, where I stepped in, so I have a one-woman play called Honor Confessions of a Mumbai Courtesan. And the play focuses on a trafficking victim who finds herself in the red light district of Mumbai, has a daughter there, and then the daughter has now come of age. And the story is about this mother-daughter duo trying to survive. Um, and Ram saw the show in 2016 at New York Fringe Festival. And uh, I've known Ram since then, uh, about like 2016-ish. 
And then in 2018, um, early on sometime in the year, he contacted me and, you know, we just talked about my process of character development for the show, etc. He he thought that the characters in the play were really um, well developed and nuanced and layered and he loved that. And then later on in the year, um, we actually talked about the comic book and the third chapter of the comic book that Ram was in the process of developing. And uh, we had a few conversations around the theme and the topic and how the comic lives in the fantastical and mythical world and all of that. And then um, Ram asked me if I would be interested in writing the third chapter. And obviously I was like over the moon. I was like, of course I'd be, I'd love to. Uh, so he gave me the premise that the book was supposed to be about Priya going into a um, place where all these girls have been trafficked and then her rescuing them and that the comic was going to focus this time on Priya and her sister. So that premise was already there for him. He had been to Sonagachi and, you know, um, done some research and all of that. So all that was already there. Um, and so over time, then we um, kept having these awesome conversations, sometimes challenging, sometimes, you know, um, moving us forward and sometimes like just like dealing with the challenges, like how do we actually talk about this subject in a way that's empowering? that raises awareness and at the same time doesn't just like paint a wrong picture that yeah it is easily attainable or you know a superhero comes and good wins over the evil and all is good when in the world trafficking is a massive issue and we don't know how to solve it actually because it's so global you know it's international and there's so much money and power involved so so that is how basically I got involved in Priya Shakti third chapter um, uh, Priya and the Lost Girls and we wanted to keep it real, but at the same time, we wanted to keep it accessible for the younger generation, for all age groups. Uh, and we wanted to make it entertaining and engaging for the youth. So we came up with these um, characters that were fantastical, that were like, they had, they had human qualities, but they weren't human. So we created a demon, a lava monster who represents the false sense of masculinity, patriarchy, um, power, aggression, lust. <laughs> No, well, patriarchy in itself might not be a demon, but patriarchy has led to lots of byproducts that we're all dealing with. And I don't think men have been spared either. If you think about it, patriarchy has boxed men also. They've, the patriarchy has told men how to behave and how to be like, beat your chest and don't cry and be strong. And a boy cannot be this way and cannot be that way. And that is very restrictive. I mean, if you just go speak to a boy who wants to be a dancer, the kind of things he has to face in the society. You know, it's just sad. So I feel like patriarchy has done bad to both genders. It's not, you know, just one. Um, but anyway, so we're coming back to the uh, topic of characters. And then we, we created like this beautiful half human, half snake character. And I joke about this because I grew up in India. So I grew up with, uh, you know, nags and nagins, ichadhari nags and nagin. What that means is like these snakes that have... Uh, that have these big diamonds that they are protecting and they can transform themselves and take any shape. And usually it's a human shape in the stories, but they could actually transform themselves into any shape. So they have these magical powers, right? And they usually are in the pairs, like a male and a female snake would be together. 
and they were so uh, interesting and exciting for me. Like in the West, people grow up with stories of mermaids, right? I grew up with these, you know, half human, half snake characters. So I was very excited to bring them in. And, um, you know, there were lots of other characters that we had created that unfortunately we had to take out because, you know, you have to think about the real estate, you have to think about the time and, uh, you know, how you can develop the whole story and stuff like that. But that's basically in a nutshell how Priya and the Lost Girls kind of developed. There's a lot more I can keep talking about, but I'm sure you have other questions. <laughs> Um, I wondered if you um, might comment on what is currently going on in India right now, particularly India, because we're hearing all these stories of Kylan very violent uh, abuse, sexual violence, you know, rapes and things like that. Um, and obviously, as a woman, as a South Asian woman, and as someone who's created this really beautiful piece of work and really important piece of work, what do you think? is the future how do we even begin to solve this yeah it's a very heartbreaking reality and it's a very grim reality you know it kind of like sometimes you just feel like i want to give up give up all hope and just not even wake up it's overwhelming very true uh, and yeah because the way things are they're just so dark so uh, i talk about this in like you know two prong solution kind of a thing because the reality the present is so dark that we need to have laws and, you know, um, self-defense courses for women and all these things that can help them stay safe. But really what is going to make a difference is not just keeping women safe, but just but creating a world that they, that is safe, you know, that we don't need to be kept safe. We need to have a world that is safe for everybody, men, women, children, everybody, gender neutral people, everybody. Um, so I talk about how we are raising our children because right now, everything is very gender biased. It's all pink and blue. Um, kids are being raised as girls or boys. They're not being raised as just children, as human beings who would respect each other. Um, right now, even in this time, when we think, oh, we're about to get into 2020, women have made so much progress and men are now like accepting women as their equals and all of that. But you go to a small village in India or Africa or any patriarchal uh, country, and, or even like Europe for that case, and you will find that boys are being raised uh, very differently than girls. Girls are still doing a lot of chores and they have to like look after the boys' needs and everything. And they're being raised to serve men. Now, when that kind of polarization of power happens, you're going to see the abuse of the power as well because women are being treated as property. And that is a problem. So if we really want a solution to this dark reality that we have created, by the way, then we need to start getting becoming responsible and everybody. And we need to start raising our children definitely so that when they grow up within 30 or 50 years we'll see a different reality and hopefully these kind of sexual abuse cases or trafficking and all of this would just be history but for that we have to wake up now because the house is on fire and we're so we're burning with you know all of us are burning in it with the house absolutely agree that's such a powerful analogy the house is on fire it literally is and if we don't take very drastic steps now i think it feels quite dark but, you know, I think there's, within the darkness, there's kind of glimmers of light, like like your wonderful book. So I think that starts sort of getting conversation started. And I think maybe then that leads to change is, is what I hope. Me, me too. <laughs> this was such an important conversation with Ram and Deepti. I learned that the world of sex trafficking supports a multi-billion dollar industry. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, 
Human trafficking is the second largest organised criminal business in the world, after the arms trade. While all of this feels impossible to change, there is always hope. We can start small. We can teach our young people, both boys and girls, about the sex trade, about the exploitation of vulnerable girls and women. If a young Priya can fight the good fight in Priya and the Lost Girls, so can we. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organisations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Hannah Walker-Brown, opening music by Sunny Robertson. <laughs>